Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my fellow Sunday School student and our executive producer, Kate Oliveira. Kate, how are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing well. We have just a minute before the bell, and then we will be joined by our Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell, uh, scripture scholar extraordinaire. And Scott, I guess my first question is, do they have bells at Sunday School? This like is in, in a church, like yeah, in a church like in a, basement, yeah, kind of a thing. I doubt it. Well, it depends. I it probably depends. You come from the Protestant tradition. I do. I, we didn't we have don't any bells. really have Sunday school as Catholic. I mean, we we kind of do. We have CCD. Sometimes there's children's liturgy of the word. Um, I don't know if bells are rung prior to that. So I'm going to go with no. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, this is our Roman season of Sunday school, and this is Kate. What is this episode? Episode three. Episode three. And Scott, what are we going to be learning about today? We're going to be going back to the beginning. So we, we did a little bit of an introduction on Paul and his letters in general, Romans, what's kind of going on. And then I thought it would be a, appropriate to start at the end. So because it's such a long letter, it's really easy to lose Paul's train of thought. And so we started with his conclusion, his so what, which had to do with the struggles in this community. So now I want to go back to the beginning, to the first three chapters, and show how he puts the argument together. And before we hear those first three chapters, just... Uh, to kind of sum up last week, what I took away from last week was, and tell me if you think I'm on the ball here, what I took away from last week was that to understand the letter to the Romans, you have to understand this problem that the church in Rome was facing in the first century of Christianity, which was that Jewish Christians, who were sort of the foundation, the bedrock of the Roman church, had been for a time exiled from Rome. During the time of their exile, there became a great number of Gentile Christians who converted to Christianity or entered the church, perhaps from other places. I get the impression they were there before the Jews oh, okay. left. So during this uh, period of exile, perhaps. these Gentile Christians rose to preeminence in positions of leadership in the church. Their culture began to sort of predominate, and then the Jewish Christians came back. And so there was a lot of challenge for these Christians from Jewish and Gentile communities about how to live in community with one another and how to live in Christian unity with one another with these two very different sort of cultural paradigms. Yeah. And Paul is addressing a lot of that as he writes to the Romans. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair enough. I'm going to add one more piece, though, which is important, because everything you said is 100% true, right? It is a question fundamentally about how in the plan of God and the reality of God's plan from the beginning, as Paul points out, you, you need to be together. God wants this family to look this way. Um, but it's not merely a letter about let's get along with each other. It's not merely a letter about let's be nice to each other and let's tolerate each other. It's a question of God's integrity because mm, the deep the right. question beneath the question is not just who should be in charge, you know, how do we kind of deal with each other that we don't like. That Those are all legitimate things. I'm not trying to dismiss them. But it's the question that, wait a second, wait a second, it's not just I don't like these people. It's that God made certain promises to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, which are foundational to the whole story of salvation history and the covenants, and now has God changed his mind? Is God capricious? Is he like the Roman and Greek gods that we grew up on, and they'll just change his mind at the drop of a hat? And and I think one of the pieces that we forget is the cultural context that many of the people in this church were raised on gods who were capricious, yeah. gods who changed their minds, gods who treat us as we are dispensable. And the question is, is Yahweh that? Is that what we're saying? And so that's what St. Paul is. That's sort of the so what is to respond to that question. And so we're going to jump in at the beginning here. So what uh, what are we going to hear from the Pillar's own Dr. Ed Condon from the Sacred Scripture? The good doctor is going to read chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. All right, fantastic. And as always, if you want to skip the readings, you can jump ahead to the 1450 mark in this episode. That's 1450. Here's Ed with chapters 1 through 3. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them.
Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, and through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. One thing I want to say, just kind of by way of introduction, um, that I've been thinking about actually in the last couple of days, because this comes up. I teach a class to the seminarians uh, here in our archdiocese about uh, Paul's letters, going through all the letters together. And one of the things that um, we've talked about this on on the previous episodes about how by their nature, these are letters, right? This isn't a theological treatise. This isn't a theology textbook that has been kind of dropped into our laps. It's an epistolatory conveyance, if you will. <laughs> it's an epistle, which is a very cumbersome a way of saying a letter. <laughs> yeah. but But what that means is that Catholic theology is embedded in the messiness of human experience and parish life. Which is really, that's how the Holy Spirit chose to do it. It's not efficient. It's not kind of a quick crash course. It's just, it's messy. And again, that's not an accident. That's how the Holy Spirit designed it because he wants us to do the work of understanding who the church is, not just what are these words, which is a very um, 
you know, the way that our, our most Christians in, in our culture and our country have been formed comes from Protestantism, which, you know, I'm not down on the Protestants. I mean, I, I they, they did a lot for me, quite frankly. I came to know Jesus in the Protestant church. Um, but it, it uh, reduces the study of scripture to words on a page rather than community experience. And I, maybe not consciously, but that, that is a feature. Um, the thing that's interesting about letters in the ancient world, we've got a lot of examples. Cicero is probably the most um, verbose of all the, the letter writers from antiquity. The longest letter we have, and I don't have it in front of me, but the longest letter that we have from the ancient world doesn't come anywhere close to the length of Romans. Romans is double, if not triple, the length of the longest of the letters in the ancient world because letter writing was a really cumbersome thing. Uh, you know, the materials were expensive to get the papyrus, to glue it together, to get someone who knew penmanship, the ink, the pen. Like, you can't just go to, to Office Depot and get the materials. Somebody did. I was reading a, a book really recently, and they were doing kind of a cost analysis of how much scribes were paid and how much materials cost. And they said to write a book like Romans would have cost Paul somewhere in the realm of $3,000 if you translate it. Wow. Which is <laughs> nice. <laughs> No, it's true. That that was the right response. I mean, which I, mean, I, I I don't know when the last time you guys wrote a letter was. I don't write physical paper letters very often. I just don't. I wrote one to you at you the do. beginning of the podcast. I try to series. write one lo love letter to my wife each week and put it and mail it to her. No, you don't. I try. I have not been <laughs> consistently successful okay. in the 17 years of our marriage, but I do oh, in the intention of mine. Okay, so JD writes a letter at once. Oh, how often? Oh, I've done it. You have written a letter, but it's not just—it's not something I do all that often. We we talk about shooting off emails or sending texts, right? Which are sloppy, and I've, I've got teenagers in my house, and the the way that teenagers text is just mind. Um, it's it's very frustrating for someone who cares about language. So, but to realize that this process is nothing like that. Every word counts. Every word matters. Every word has a huge cost behind it. So you're not shooting off anything. Right. There's conventions and there's structure and there's a way that it's done. You would hire a scribe. Sometimes Paul even mentions a whole team of scribes that are participating in doing this. You know, there's a, a famous Rembrandt painting of Paul sitting in like his study kind of crafting a letter, which is almost certainly not what it would have looked that looked like. Usually he's either in prison or he's at somebody's house on a couch, you know, in, a, in the midst of a whole bunch of people and disciples with some, some trained scribes and they're, they're kind of crafting this together. So in a certain sense, it's kind of beautiful because these letters oh, are coming from Team Paul. Yeah, that's really And he always says it's not normal in ancient letters to have a whole bunch of different authors writing it. Say Paul plus Timothy plus Sylvanus plus whoever else. That's not common. Sometimes you would mention family members, but Paul always, except with the exception of Romans, he mentions people who are kind of there in his team, which is how you would treat family. So even the letters themselves and the way that they're coming says something about the ecclesiology of Paul, that this is a family that this is coming from. That's super but, interesting. But here's the other thing that I, I, I was thinking about this week. The way that they would usually be conveyed. So Rome had, a, had an incredible postal system. The Roman Empire, they had their roads and their the ports and everything Express. else. But the Roman postal system was reserved exclusively for government officials and military officials. Mm. So normal people couldn't send a letter through the Roman military or through the Roman post office. So mm. if you wanted to write a letter to somebody, your grandma or your friend or a church community in Rome, you had to either find someone who was going there anyway or hire someone to go do it on your own expense. So it seems that oftentimes... Was there like a private, like a kind of a UPS that emerged, like with sh mer shipping merchants and stuff where they take mail? 
there was a guild of scribes. So scribes were a guild. That was a, a community of people that had, a, it was like a, a labor union sort of. Um, they would often be the ones who delivered the letters. Oh, so it was like part couriers. of the guild. They were kind of like couriers as well. So I, I bet for at least a lot of Paul's letters, the scribes themselves are the ones delivering it. Is that in the three grand? Probably. Okay. I'm not sure. I, th I think so, based on, again, this, this guy's particular kind of assessment. But it's convenient because then the person who's delivering it also knows something about Paul's thought because they helped him kind of craft this and they went back and forth yeah, on things. Yeah, and yeah. the community could ask him questions. But the way that these letters are being received, which, again, we, I think we talked about this, they're being read after Mass. Yeah. So I recently – so most of us have some experience or another with Paul's letters – we have a long, sometimes good, sometimes neutral history um, in the Christian church of cherry picking a lot of Paul's. And I bet a lot of you could, could you know, our listeners and you guys could quote kind of, you know, a line or two here or there or a passage from Paul. And we, 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 we do that and that's fine. But I recently, I was telling my seminarians, I was challenging them as we go through Paul's letters, sit down with each letter we read. And Romans is the most cumbersome. Read it all in one sitting. Yeah. And this is 16 chapters, which actually takes a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. But the experience of hearing the letter in one sitting is a totally different experience than I'd ever had before. It changed yeah. the way that I heard this. Because all of a sudden, then you hear consistently the voice that's kind of going through beginning to end. But most of us don't read it this way. Even the liturgy, that's not how we do it. We're given like bits and pieces, which is fine. But the experience, and I actually told my seminarians, read it to each other because that would be the experience of the first listeners. Right. That yeah. would be a cool thing for, for pastors who are listening yeah. to this or DREs or people who work in a parish. That would be a really cool thing to do as a devotion in the parish, like expose the Blessed Sacrament and then just read a whole letter of Scripture. Mm -hmm. I'd yeah. be all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be beautiful because, again, that's the most true to the original experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. And like I said, the, the first time I did it, it changed the way I read it. It, it sounded different all of a sudden. What, did, what language did you do it in? Jeez, jeez. I did it in English. Okay. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah, it in English. It wasn't quite accurate. No, it's but. cool. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah, I can do it in Greek next time. So anyway. The letter um, to the Romans was written in – oh, because Koine Greek. Greek was the lingua franca of the era. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so anyway, so all that is just to say this is uh, – there is a particular home for this, and I encourage you guys – Listening to, to try that. Um, so all that is to say, we talked last week about the circumstances. You gave a good little summary. So we're dealing with the question now about the the integrity of God. Can God be trusted? And what do I do with that guy? Can who God I don't be like? trusted because just really quick, uh, thirty thousand foot. Can God be trusted because? Because in my experience, I was supposed to, my people are the chosen people of God. We, and if this church is the fruit of Israel, if this is Israel, then why are the chosen people not leading the church? Because that is appropriate. Has God forgotten question. about us? Has How come so many of us have rejected the Messiah? Why is our bloodline, why is so many of the chosen people of God, if we are chosen, if that's real— where are we? Where are the rest of us? Where's the rest of the family? Why do we feel cast out? Why do we feel exiled? And even those who are here, why like are we cast exiled. to the back of the church? Yeah. 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 So that's the question. Okay. And so the uh, – I had a – I always give my students a, a list of some key terms, kind of a glossary, which I'm not going to go through. But there are a couple terms that we will come across that most of us have heard before, but sometimes we have the wrong understanding of what they mean. 
So one of the things that Paul's going to lean on is this idea of the righteousness of God, diatheke uh, theo, I think is the Greek there. And the righteousness of God doesn't simply mean that God is really good. He's righteous, like he's good and he's moral and he's upright. I mean, those that's sometimes how we can use the word righteous, but righteousness is a technical term. It's almost a legal term, and it means God's faithfulness to his covenants. A king, for example, is righteous if they're faithful to the laws and the promises and the covenants that they set out to enact. If they said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So Paul's going to talk constantly about the righteousness of God, right? And how we are made righteous through that. But it has to do, again, not with just generic goodness, but the fact that if he said he'd do it, he's going to do it. Which is why Paul, remember, at the very end of the letter, he's going to pull together all these Old Testament texts that say, look, if you, if you read the Bible carefully from the beginning, he promised that the Gentiles were meant to be a part of this. So... The fact that you look around your church and it ethnically looks different than you thought it would and it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, it is God still being faithful to what he promised because he said he would do this. Yeah. So that that's an important kind of theme that kind of runs through it. But um, would that, that would have been for Jewish scholars of Paul's time a heretical reading of scripture, so to speak, that God had willed the the universalization of the covenant? No. No. Okay. Um, No, I don't think so. And I'm hesitating because I don't, you know, somebody could refute me. I don't think anybody was really questioning. So there's there's multiple things going on. There's theological questions, and then there's human questions, as we've talked about, right? I don't think anybody would really dispute. I mean, the the scriptures are crystal clear. That's why Paul is doing this. That's why he's pulling them together, that it's meant for the Gentiles to be a part of things. But that's different than the Gentiles running things. And that's where I think people would kind of call this into question. Wait a second. It's not that we're opposed to the Gentiles exactly. It's that now they're in charge of everything. Jewish scholars would refute that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is the means for these Gentiles coming in. But they they wouldn't refute the notion of the universalization of the covenant itself. They wouldn't, I don't think, refute the notion, at least on its face, of the universality of the covenant. Um, but I, again, I, I think on hindsight's twenty twenty on the front end of this, I think people are thinking, no, we're cool with them being included in our family. Like if you want to kind of join our family, that's awesome. But the whole family after Christianity was sort of launched begins to look different by its very nature, right? Which leads to the messiness of just human relationships. Because yes, theoretically, we're cool with those people being here, but we don't really like them. And we, maybe they could have their own church down the street. We're not opposed to that. Maybe they could have their own mass kind of over there. Like that would be fine with us. Because again, it's not, we're not refuting that these people are supposed to be here. Fine. But can you just be over there? Right? Can it, does it have to overtake everything? Right. You want to have mass, you know, think of a modern corollaries, right? You want to have mass in a different language. Have your mass then. Like there's here's a time period where no one's using the church. Cool. Do your mass. But you're telling us we need to do all of our masses with you in, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm, I, the analogies get kind of weird. But also maybe No, pointed. I think, I mean, maybe we've talked about this, that there's some, there's some parallel. Yeah. It's one thing, I think, if the parish, for many American Catholics, if the parish has a Spanish language mass, right. would be another thing if suddenly Spanish was the ordinary liturgical language of the parish. That's the right, that's what appears is happening to yeah. them. And that would, would be, be disorienting to That people. would be yeah. disorienting. That, that's, yeah. that's a fair thing to say. That's safe enough to say. So, so there's a lot of there. Again, there's a theological question, but then there's also the very human question of like, mm, that's I'm, that's a disorienting and unco- uncomfortable. 
Okay, so as we go back to the beginning, chapters 1 through 11, so kind of the heart of the letter, is going to be aimed at helping Jew and Gentile both see that in the reality of God's family, not only ought they be together, but they have to be together. Because again, it's a question of God's integrity. So the question is going to move and sort of shift from, can God be trusted, to this is what God said, so you must get on board, because this is how it is based on the promises that God always made. So you don't have an option. You it's must just, be together be nice because it was God's will from the beginning. God's will from the beginning. That the covenant with Israel would extend beyond ethnic and social Israel. Yeah, and then Paul's even going to take another level. We'll probably get to this next time. But he makes some arguments, again, based on the Old Testament about, about younger sons versus older sons. And then even if you go back through the covenants in the Old Testament, even to Genesis, there's often times when the younger brother might get the blessing over the older brother. And a younger a younger son might have authority over his older brothers. Look at Joseph, look at uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Right, there's examples of that. And Paul's going to say, this is not unprecedented. I know it's a little bit uncomfortable, but you know what? God's done this before. That's what he wants you thinking about through the whole thing. God does not change. Um, the changeability of God is a really big question. This is what Acts of the Apostles is, is in a lot of ways about, right? Can God change? Because if God is unchanging and God commanded that we live a certain way, if God commanded that people be circumcised and keep kosher and follow these particular laws and God can't change, then we should do those things. And part of the problem that's going to – again, this isn't the problem of Romans, but the problem that led to Romans from Acts of the Apostles – was not only who is allowed in the covenant family, but by what means they're allowed. So you remember in Acts of the Apostles, one of the big fights is that people are like, hey, Peter, we're cool with you hanging out with Gentiles, even baptizing them, that's fine, but they need to be circumcised, they need to keep kosher, they need to follow all the laws of Deuteronomy. And Peter's like, nope, God has actually dispensed that. So there's a lot of kind of bitterness that's still floating around about that. There's a council in Jerusalem where Peter makes a declaration that this is what we believe now as a church, but I guarantee you that there's a lot of residual bitterness It's interesting that. because as Christians, we don't tend to think of ourselves as the recipients of the dispensation of the Mosaic Law, like the just ordering would be that we observe the... Is that true? I mean, is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, on, on a certain level, and this is theology that we don't necessarily have time for, but... but one of the things the church has to work out is the question of if God doesn't change, because that, that's fundamental. God yeah, can't right. change. That's right. who God is. Right. So can God change his mind? And there's places in the Old Testament, remember, where, where Abraham kind of bargains yeah, for Sodom right. and Gomorrah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's not really God changing his mind. It's God sort of condescending into this relationship, this, this conversation with Abraham. Because yeah. Abraham is the one who's changed at the end. When, yeah. when he comes to Moses and he's like, all right, I'm done with these people. Like, I'll stick with you, but I'm, I'm out. And Moses is like, no, you have to stay with them. He's teaching these patriarchs to be intercessors, right? Yeah. So God doesn't really change, he, he, even though what he appears to. Yeah. So the church is going to come to this conclusion of, well, how can we reckon with a God who just seems like he's changed his mind on these things that are really, really important? Like we had to keep these laws and now we don't anymore. Or like we do, but those people don't. It, it's, again, like an entire – I think I gave this example in a class. Maybe it wasn't here – an entire mosque shows up at your parish one Sunday, and they're like, we love Jesus Christ. We want to be a Catholic. And the pastor's like, great, you're in, baptizes them, and accepts them to communion. 
And you're like, but you didn't go through the process. You didn't, mm -hmm. you didn't have classes RCA. Like there's a lot of steps you have to go through yeah. and they don't do that. So what the church has to reckon with is the nature of the law. What yeah. is Deuteronomy? And the, even though the word itself, Deutero means second and nomos means law. So Deuteronomos means the second law. There was a protonomos, right? There was a first law, which we call the 10 commandments, which were pretty intuitive and pretty straightforward, but written into our hearts, you could say, right? Kind of like natural law. Um, but because Israel's unfaithful, because they are uh, irresponsible teenagers in a certain sense, whenever my kids misbehave, I usually have to put more rules or more laws. There's something that punitive that has to happen. So God wants Israel to be a kind of people. He gives them some freedom and they abuse that freedom. So more law has to show up. That's where circumcision comes from. That predates the Exodus. It's with Abraham after he has an affair with Hagar and has a child out of wedlock. Um, same with the Mosaic laws, right? So what the church essentially is going to determine is because we talk about Jesus fulfills the law, yeah, but we don't really mean that. We kind of just mean abolition. We just mean Jesus abolished the law. We so tend to, to in our common. I think in our common, mean. like, like yeah, if right. you ask someone, what do you mean that Jesus fulfilled it? I don't think most people could give you a satisfactory answer other than, well, we don't do it anymore. Yeah, I think about that a lot with the mass a lot. Like, I think a lot we don't tend to think, oh, the mass is actually the efficacious temple sacrifice of a spotless land. Like we don't, we yeah. tend to sort of think like there was sacrifices, but now there's no sacrifices. Actually, yeah. no, there was sacrifices and then there was an efficacious sacrifice. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But the, those old ones were meant to point ahead to their ultimate fulfillment. Right. Yeah. To something mm -hmm. greater. Yeah. Now, the nature of Deuteronomy is different because there's not the same things. We don't do some new new covenant version of kosher food laws, right? Or, yeah. or there is a new covenant version of circumcision. It's called baptism. Yeah. But the nature of these things, the church essentially determines, look, they were punitive. And aside from the eternal punishment, punishments are never meant to be forever, right? Yeah. If I ground my kids, they can't, I can't ground them forever. Even yeah. in hyperbolically, we say that as parents, like, you're now taking the switch away forever. You're never going to do video games again. We do stupid things like that. But that's not how, how punishments work. So if... The law of Moses, which is going to feature heavily in Romans, you guys, that's the key to everything. If the nature of the law of Deuteronomy was always meant to be a temporary reality, then not doing those things anymore is fulfillment. Yeah. That is God being faithful. It's God yeah. being true to what he said he was going to do. He says this to Peter in Acts of the Apostles. Remember when he says to go and eat these animals that were considered unkosher? Yeah. And Peter says, no, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And God says, what I have cleansed, you can't call on unclean anymore. Mm. So it's not that God changed the law. He changed the object of the law. Mm -hmm. These things are no longer unclean for you. God doesn't change. And that's the, the hinge that the people have to hold in their minds as they navigate through this whole different ecclesial world now. God doesn't change, but yet we don't have to do that stuff anymore. How does that work? Ah, because the nature of the law was meant to be temporary, to teach us something, to lead us to a place so that God could do something new. Mm -hmm. That is what Romans is kind of going to hinge on. Paul will use the term works of the law over and over and over again. And remember, the, the whole Lutheran, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic debate tended to center around this question of faith versus works, right? Which I think a lot of modern people view as, well, do I believe or do I do good deeds? It's believing or doing stuff, which is so far from Paul's mindset that it's it's unthinkable. That's not what he's talking about. Faith, Paul always associates with baptism. You can do the mathematics about 80% of the time, whenever he says the word faith, baptism will be in the next sentence or in that one. Faith and baptism always work together for Paul. 
Because faith is not rotely believing. Faith is an act. It's doing something. And works of the law, quote unquote, is technical terminology for the book of Deuteronomy. So how are we saved? We're saved by our faith working through baptism. We're not saved by the works of Deuteronomy any longer. That's the that's the conversation that's being had mm-hmm. in the book of Romans. Yeah. Because people are in a little bit of dispute on that. Mm. And some people are trying to figure out, okay, well, we get that, but now what should our relationship to those old laws be? Yeah. If we don't have to do them anymore, because some of the community, remember, we saw this in chapter 14, some are still keeping kosher. And you Paul's pointed like, out cool, that that's don't worry. such a longstanding cultural thing. Yes. Like Catholics who don't practice, if, like there are prob- probably fewer and fewer, but I think probably in the post-conciliar period, there were lots of people who stopped practicing the faith but kept not eating meat on Friday because it's just like we don't do that in our family. That's what we do. Or people who don't practice the faith but have like a big Italian Christmas Eve dinner or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. But again, the question is the relationship to it. How do we approach those things? And one more word I guess we should point out um, as we're here is the term salvation, which salvation can mean a lot of different things. And theologically, it does sort of mean something in the church nowadays. But in Paul's time, Salvation, sozo is the Greek word. It meant something really specific. We talked, I think, in the first episode about the nature of the Roman Empire and how we have to sort of understand the cultural milieu if Paul's going to make any sense. But remember, Caesar Augustus and his, his – uh, not predecessors, the ones who came successors. after. Successors. Successors, thank you. They promised salvation. And salvation for Caesar was what it meant to fall within the protection of living in the Roman Empire. That is salvation. That is what it means to be saved. And I think most of us hear exclusively and nothing more than being saved is what happens when I die. Yeah, and that's catalogical salvation, right? Yeah, yeah. Which it's related to that. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not trying to remove that from it. But for Paul, it's much more immediately. Salvation is being a part of the covenant family. How do you get into the family of God? That's what it means to be saved. We are saved mm. through our baptism. Mm which means not necessarily that it's an automatic free ticket to heaven, Mm -hmm. but that's the way that we become adopted sons and daughters of God. In the Old Testament, in the works of the law, it was through circumcision. That was the way in which you were saved. So how are we saved? By works or faith? Paul's like, you're saved through your baptism, which is faith operative. But it's a question of membership, not necessarily a question of eternal damnation. Yeah. Although they're not unrelated. Again, don't misunderstand. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. But again, you guys, this is going to change the whole way we read the book. Yeah. Because the conversation's different. That description of works before. (laughs) And then it becomes a much more sane book to read. Right. It becomes a much more immediately of interest to us of what does that actually look like. So Mm. I want you to keep all those things kind of in mind because that's what Paul's going to then go back to do. So let's go back to, to chapter one, verse one. We'll start at the beginning. Um, and remember, one, one of the big, there's, I just want to keep this in our minds. There's, there's multiple layers to this. Because remember, Paul is not writing a theological textbook. Yeah. There is theology, but there's also a whole bunch of human emotions. And they're all intermingled because that's how human beings work, yeah. right? We're a mixture of stuff. And so part of the issue is going to be the issue of pride. Yeah. It is, yeah, there's theological stuff that you can point to, but it is pride that is tearing you apart. It's yeah. pride that's actually ripping the community. And I mean, I do feel like I have experience with this, with even people I know, right? There is a hurt. Someone's been hurt by the church. Someone feels that they've been let down or disappointed or, or hurt, either perceived or actually. 
And they're like, well, the reason I'm not Catholic is because of this theological tenet and this one and this one. And this but one. it's I not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, there's more to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's one of the things we have to kind of keep intention in the book of Romans because yeah. there's a lot of theology, but there's also a lot of emotion behind it. Yeah. But that's good. That's the way it's supposed to work. So I just point that out uh, from the get-go. You know, it's interesting. We had a- I had asked you um, when we did the Mark season one, uh, one of the things that we I had asked you about and we sort of talked about a lot was whether or not the priests of Israel had a pastoral care function. Uh, and what did um, I, say? I don't remember exactly what you said. I think you said no, that rabbis had that kind of thing. At, at one point, rabbis were a bit of a later development, but they it kind of fell to them more. But you can see with Paul how that emerges very organically from this deep concern that Paul yeah. has for Christian unity, that he has to attend to sort of, because he's concerned about the unity of the church for, from a theological reason even, he has to attend to these sort of like pastoral issues of like woundedness and stuff like that, which emerges into probably the pastoral nature of of, of, of Christian priesthood. One hundred percent. Well, yeah. yes, Paul. Mm, which isn't to say yes, I imagine that, right. like yeah, me and my right. wife would go and sit down with Paul and he'd tell us how to be nicer to each other, being married or whatever. But well, Paul you know, hangs out with a married couple for a long time. No, my point is, I think probably, like, but it's both. He's and. probably pastoral care was probably you know like um, all I'm saying is I imagine that Paul is uh, not offering you a box of tissues across the desk or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of but he does have this deep be. concern for people like... He might be. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm not willing... Sorry, I'm not trying to push the no, wrong no, point no. again. I'm not willing to take that away from Paul. Okay, fair. He, the, I, in the letter of First Thessalonians, he gets almost uncomfortably emotional with the Thessalonians. Yeah. He's like, I, I don't know if you remember this. He's like, I'm like a breastfeeding mother away yeah, from my yeah, children. And yeah. like, I feel like an orphan who's been ripped out of her mother's hands because I can't be with you and yeah. see you. And you're like, oh, Paul, like, yeah. chill out. But there's like a, a deep, there's a deep, there's a theological reason for the emergence of pastoral care in the context of the Christian priesthood. That's more yes. than just like the, the dignity of uh, the individual, so saying. to speak. I, I see. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you were saying something else. Sorry. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's something that even I think needs to be worked out because Paul is yeah. not originally thinking of himself as a priest. Yeah. He calls himself an apostle. Yeah. He does have an authority, but the pastoral care thing kind of arises organically. It actually seems much high closer to Jesus. His, yeah, right. But it seems much closer to his perception of himself as um, a missionary and community, sort of community attendant. Yeah. Attendant to the unity of these communities. <laughs> All right, so Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, literally a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, comma. I'm pausing here because this is an extraordinarily long sentence. Yeah. yeah. And Paul's going on. Again, I mentioned that Paul's letters are the longest we have in all of antiquity. Yeah. It's because of stuff like this. Usually in a traditional letter, you would say, Paul, to grandma. Yeah. I'm thankful, you know, that you sent me a sweater last year. Like, that's your opening to the letter. Paul almost never just says, hey, Paul, an apostle, writing to the church in blah, blah, yeah. blah. Sometimes, but usually there's long descriptors of Paul, which does not normally happen. It's, it's unique in the ancient world. So he's giving this long descriptor. Paul's got a lot of emotion behind him. Paul, remember, has not been to Rome yet. He's not yeah. been to this community. He's going to say it later on in this chapter that he really wants to go there. Um, but he calls himself an apostle here, which I just want to say a quick word about that. Uh, remember, the the apostles are a big deal. Sometimes the tradition uses the term apostle a little bit loosely. Remember, Mary Magdalene is called the apostle to the apostles. But certainly in the Gospels, it's very specific. They are the 12 appointed by Jesus who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. 
what Paul sees or what Paul seems to see going on, because 12 is not an arbitrary number. Nope. He's literally reforming number. Israel, which makes yep. Paul the 13th. But the whole nature of what Paul's going to do and demonstrate is that Israel is bigger than we thought it was. Israel is not merely the 12 tribes of antiquity. Israel is the 12 tribes plus all of the Gentiles who God has desired from the beginning of the story to draw into the family of Israel. Mm -hmm. And it's a good reminder that the church is not... I don't like the term a new Israel. We're a new Israel and there's an old Israel. We're just Israel. Israel is Israel. We are just the continuation of it. And we've been grafted onto the tree, as Paul's going to use a metaphor later, or adopted into the family, whatever metaphor you want to use. Israel is Israel. There's not, and there's a dangerous, I think it was called a heresy formally, the idea of uh, replacement theology. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that. Which is terrible. Yeah. Oh, I, we've talked about it. Okay. God did not replace, you know, Old Testament Israel with a new group. Israel is Israel. This is why there's no license historically for the church to have ever been anti-Semitic mm-hmm. because we're the same family. Right. And so, again, Paul's going to be harsh on his fellow kinspeople, but it's not an anti-Semitism. It's just that we're a big, messy family, like it or not. So Paul's an apostle. He sees himself in that role because there's another tribe that he is specifically called to, to minister to, set apart for the gospel of God. I make a whole a big deal in my classes. We talked about this in the first season, yeah. that there's an Old Testament definition of gospel. Yeah. Gospel is not a New Testament word. It yeah. was originally in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere. Caesar Augustus talked about his birth being an evangelion, a good news. Yeah. But the story for Israel was that it felt like God had abandoned us. Remember, this is the story of the Old Testament. God is gone. He's left the temple. We're suffering all these things. God abandoned us. And Isaiah says, hey, guess what? The good news is that God is coming back. And if you want to know where to find him, you can look to the wilderness. There's going to be a voice crying out and he's going to travel a hodos, a road from the wilderness of the Jordan to Jerusalem, where he will become king and defeat all of our enemies. That is the gospel in a nutshell. I think, again, most Catholics, if you ask them, what does the gospel mean? We'd struggle to give you a, a precise answer, an articulate answer. It's Jesus. But it's that it seemed like God had abandoned his people. He came back to us in the flesh. He showed up in the wilderness in a physical, actual, geographic, real location. And he traveled to Jerusalem to defeat all of our enemies and become king. That's what Paul means when he says, I am an apostle of the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. And he wants you to know that this is an Old Testament term because he said he promised it beforehand by the prophets. Right. This is not a new thing. Yeah. This is Because remember, the, the temptation in the church is to think this is a new thing that's going on. And now yeah. we Gentiles are kind of champions of the new thing. Yeah. And he wants to put them in their place and be like, this is not you. You did not make this up. Yeah. You might have a particular role in it, which is yeah. beautiful. You didn't make this. Yeah. This was promised from the beginning. Yeah. And even in the first lines, he's got to be pointing that out. Yeah. And he's saying this. Notice, by the way, this Evangelion, uh, Paul called to be a doulos of Jesus, the Christ. Christ means king, kurios, Lord. He's saying all of this literally under the nose of Nero, which is yeah. a pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's a right. bold thing to do. Yeah. And you can see why Paul is killed in Rome not yeah. too long after this. Yeah. So he's saying all these things. So Paul is writing to this Christians in the heart of the greatest empire of the time, saying that the gospel that that, that I'm preaching, you know, it, it predates all of this stuff. 
And if you have differences, you need to settle them because God decreed it from the prophets. From the beginning, he has worked this out. Notice also that he roots Jesus' lineage in David because he wants to stress this idea of kingship. Jesus, and again, he's saying it under the rose of Nero, under the nose of Nero. But kingship is the thing that, you know, the Jewish people have been waiting for this, hoping for this, praying for this. But the Greeks, the Greco-Romans, the Gentiles also have a framework for this because there's a counter-narrative that's been happening, a counter-Evangelion in the world, right? There's two different gospels, and he's trying to put Jesus in this particular place. Um, So, verse 5, let's jump down there. Uh, I'll finish verse 4. Sorry, I I cut us off. He designated, God did, Son of God in power. Jesus was Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus the Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, among the nations, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. By the way, that's one giant sentence in the Greek. There's no breath in there. So it's, you see why Paul's letters are so long in antiquity. Normally you'd just be like, Paul, to Rome. Yeah. But he doesn't do that. He's like, Paul, who's got all of these descriptors. And you, you almost get the sense that Paul is almost overly excited to introduce himself to this community that hasn't met him yet. This is who I am. Does he need to establish his credibility or he already has it? I don't know. He's he's obviously known. People know yeah. who he is, but Paul doesn't look in the first century the way he looks to us. Paul's not understood to be the greatest theologian of the time. Paul is the guy, the persecutor, terrorist, killer, yeah. who is kind of making everybody mad and has made enemies on every single realm. The Jews say he's not Jewish enough. The Gentiles say he's too Jewish. Nobody really likes Paul that much yeah. except the communities that he builds. So it's hard to say. So um, I think Paul's not taking it for granted that he's got a stellar reputation in Rome. I think he's got to lean into that a little bit. But his credibility is all in the gospel. His credibility is not... And other letters, he'll put his credibility on his pedigree. He doesn't do that here. My credibility is the gospel. And he uses this term that I just have to mention. He says... Uh, it's in verse five. He talks about bringing the obedience of faith or a faithful allegiance is another way to translate that. Yeah. Um, I point that out because that concept, obedience of faith or a faithful allegiance to a king, that is the bookend concept of the letter. So we talked about chiasms before. Mm-hmm. He mentions that here in chapter one. He's going to mention again in chapter 16. The obedience of faith. That is the bookend that holds everything together. An obedience of faith in Jesus or a faithful allegiance to Jesus which he's doing because, again, um, they're rallying around their own ethnic personalities, right? There's personalities, there's pride that's dividing them. And what he's trying to lean into is that if you put all of your allegiance in King Jesus, then ideally the rest of the stuff is supposed to kind of fade to the background. We know humans aren't perfect, but that's the idea. You know, different skin color, different economic status, educational levels, the whole... (laughs) thought of the church in a certain sense was this, right? And and I, I you and I, JD, we've talked about the nature of parishes and, and how that's it's kind of a struggle in our particular country because we don't have this as much anymore. It's geographic, it's socioeconomic. People in my parish tend to look ethnically, um, socioeconomically like me. Yeah. They just are because neighborhoods are the way that they yeah. are. It wasn't always that way. The church in Rome didn't look like each other. And that's number one, what was so beautiful about it. So um, 
compelling to the Roman Empire about it, so threatening to a lot of people, and so unprecedented. Mm-hmm. But we don't have that because you'd literally have slaves sitting next to centurions. I right? find that in a certain way a testament to the faith of the early Christians that they were that they wanted to, like each of the people came there not because of the various sort of social incentives which bring yes. us yes. to mass in addition to our Christian faith, but That's because right. They wanted to be disciples of the Lord Jesus at a time when that was so... That's right. Demand, even sitting there demanded more. Sitting there demanded a ton, yeah. uh, particularly if you were of the upper classes. And yeah. I mean, look at the letter to Philemon, which we haven't really yeah. talked about. I mean, he's telling a wealthy landowner to serve his slave. Be a doulos to your doulos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Serve him at your table. There, there, no, nobody talked like that. Like that's right. we, we say pious-sounding things all the yeah. time. There's no context for that in the ancient world. Yeah. So again, it, it's it's easy for us to abstract that, but it's beautiful. It's profound. It's a testament to the church. But again, it's easy to forget how many practical problems that also brings up because it's not utopia, right? It's actual human beings with lots, yeah. I mean, even lots of fights. I realize that the liturgy is not the same thing. So the things that I'm saying are anachronistic, but even something like, I presume... What is the order in which, if we have, if we are different social statuses in a stratified sort of class system mm-hmm. universe, what is the order in which we get in line for communion? Again, not that we get in line for communion, but like things like that, where outside I don't have to stand in line behind you because I'm better than you, but yeah. here, you know what I mean? Like, just it seems like every little thing would pose these sort of we do things in a very different yeah. way here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't know. Again, I realize it's a sort of an anachronistic example, but it just helps me to see, oh, yeah, every single thing yes. requires, in certain ways, a rejection of the ordinary yes. culture of the place in yeah, order and, to be in ecclesia with one another. And Paul's often talking about that. In Corinthians, he's talking about, hey, how come some people are coming early with all their food and getting fat, and then everybody else, like the poor who have, you know, probably have work and have to get off of their shift, they're coming and all the food's gone before, you know, the, the celebration before the liturgy, right? Yeah. There, there's all sorts of ways in which that's playing itself out, yeah. which, again, we'll have to put aside for now. Uh, let's jump ahead to verse uh, 11. He says, for I long to see you guys. He hasn't seen them yet. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift and strengthen you. That is, that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both both yours and mine. He'll spend a couple lines at the very beginning kind of, I don't want to say buttering up exactly, but telling him how great, like, this is great. I I can't wait to see you guys. You're awesome. Before he rips them to shreds, which he does a couple lines later. Uh, In verse 13, it says... Uh, I want you to know, brethren, but that I have often intended to come to you, but I've, I've, often, I've thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. That's our first clue. One of the things that makes this section of the book really hard to navigate is that Paul is kind of constantly going back and forth with who exactly he's speaking to. So here he just said, I want to come visit because I want to reap some harvest among you. In other words, I'm going to ask you for money is is essentially what he's going to say. As I have the rest of the Gentiles, which tells you, oh, at the moment you're actually talking to the Gentiles, knowing that the Jews are in the congregation too. And then a couple lines later, he's going to turn and be like, hey, you Jews, I'm going to say this to you, knowing that the Gentiles are there as well. Um, You got to do some reading between the lines, but not a ton because Paul's fairly explicit. But if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. But he wants to say specific things to specific communities. And notice the financial piece he's bringing up to the Gentiles, partially because they're the ones in leadership. They're the ones who have some economic um, stability. They haven't been cast out and exiled for the last five years. So again, some of this kind of just makes sense. 
Uh, he says, verse 14, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you guys also who are in Rome. So he's kind of messing with them in a certain sense. It's, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but he's playing with the way that the Gentiles view the world. Because if you're Gentile, if you're a Greek speaker in Rome, you thought of the world in two categories, right? There's the Greeks and there's the barbarians. Greeks and barbarians. And it's a pejorative, right? Um, you guys know where the term barbarians come from? Yeah, Herodotus. Because the people, or maybe Thucydides, but I one way Thucydides. Or other, yeah, people who are not Greek speaking say bar, 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 yeah. bar, bar, bar. It's making fun of language, right? Yeah. So blobarians, you yeah. could say. It just sounds like blah, blah, blah. It just sounds yeah. like bar, 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 bar. Because for the Greeks, they're like, the Greek language is the best. Like, we have rhetoric and we have wisdom and this is, we're awesome. Everybody else is just saying this gibberish. Right. So that's where the term barbarians come from. So he's he's messing with, he's playing on that. Mm-hmm. He's like, I want to come speak to you Greeks and the rest of the barbarians too, because I actually love them as well. Um, the Jews would be kind of considered barbarians, right? They're they're crass and they're uneducated and un- inarticulate. But then he jumps down, verse 16. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you guys. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. And again, I would argue that for Paul, that means baptism. Mm-hmm. It's not just rote belief. And I think Paul would be offended that we thought it was. He's are like, there I've never some said people that. there who, ha- who are ashamed of the gospel? What is the, who's that versus... I think they're ashamed of each other. Oh, okay. I think that's more to the point. Oh, I want to come and hang out with all of you because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So because if you don't if you want to hang out what with the each gospel, other. For Paul, the gospel right. is the inclusion of the Gentiles into this. So if this. you don't want to hang out with each other, you must be ashamed of the gospel. Exactly. That's what he's getting. That's exactly. I, I think that's what he's saying, which again, that makes more sense to me. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So now he's going to kind Putting of turn it out there. a little bit. Yeah. And he's playing on the, Greek, the, the Jewish way of viewing the world, right? For the Jew, there's two kinds of people. You're either Jewish or you're Gentile. Yeah. You're everybody else. Greeks and barbarians, Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. It's kind of the same mindset. Yeah, yeah. And again, he's trying to, to level the playing field in a certain sense. Uh, verse 17, he says, for in it, the right for in what? The gospel. If there is a thesis statement in the book, it's this. It's these two lines, right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, i.e. baptism, I think. First to the Jew, because even chronologically, it came to the Jews first. That's just a fact of the matter, he's going to say. And then to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. For it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Habakkuk, Martin Luther makes a big deal about that one. But I want to focus on that term, the righteousness of God, because we already talked about that. What does Paul mean when he says- Hang on, I want to make sure I caught it. You said there are two thesis statements there before you dive into it. I just said these two verses. Okay, not ashamed of the gospel. So bullet point them for me. One, not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel's for everyone, Jew and Greek. That's that's his personal testimony. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because in the gospel, the gospel is the power of salvation. In other words, being brought into the family of God to everyone who has faith, i.e. has been baptized. Mm -hmm. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness is revealed. And what does he mean by righteousness of God? His trustworthiness. God keeps, right. He does what he says. That God does what he says. And that's what's in dispute. And in doing what he says, the gospel is the power of salvation coming into the family, first for the Jews and then for the Greeks, which again is is a sore subject. So that's why I say it's kind of kind of the thesis statement, yeah. and that's what he's going to riff on kind of for the rest. Does that yeah. make sense? This thesis statement is totally different with the vocabulary that right? he gave. Because you've probably heard <laughs> this yeah. before. Right, exactly. We, this is a, it's a throwaway. It's not throwaway, but people use no, it a it, lot. It, they yeah. grab yeah. it, and they kind of use it for stuff. Mm-hmm. But again, in the context, you're like, oh, that's <laughs> slightly different, right? 
And again, salvation, salvation is kind of a big deal. Okay. Uh, he says the righteousness of God. I already kind of talked about that is faithfulness. Um, by the way, when you see this term faithfulness to his covenant, um, faithfulness, righteousness actually shows up through the Old Testament. And this is going to come back into play. And, and maybe it's just because I'm from Boulder, but this, this catches my eye. If you go back through the covenants in the Old Testament, God doesn't only promise faithfulness to Abraham and Moses and their descendants, but he promises to be faithful to all of creation. There's a covenant that he makes after the flood. There's a covenant he makes when he creates all that is. This, the idea of creation being in a seven is covenant. God has sworn himself not only to you and me and our ancestors, but to all of creation, which is why the church makes a big deal about a new heavens and a new earth. It's why Paul will say at the climax of his central point about Jesus in chapter eight, that all creation is actually groaning out in travail, waiting for the revealing of this stuff. Because um, Irenaeus talks about this, right? Christ either came to redeem everything or nothing. Yeah. It's an all or nothing thing. So the scope totally. is massive. Um, Paul, it's not hyperbole, but Paul thinks big. Yeah. So he's saying this letter is going to show God's faithfulness, not just to you and the children of Abraham and also the Gentiles who are always on the periphery of this, but to everything that is, Yeah. which is a, a beautiful vision. Mm-hmm. All right. So the heart of the letter, and again, because it's such a long letter, it's easy to forget where Paul started, which is why I want to start at the end. But the whole point is that the righteousness of God, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness is revealed um, through the gospel. Mm-hmm. How is it revealed, though? And that's what he gets to next. And the way in which it's revealed, first of all, is through the bad news. So look at the next line. And again, people might not have seen this coming. They're like, okay, Jew and the Greek, Greeks and barbarians, everybody get along. God is righteous. You know, this is all good stuff. And then you get slapped with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. And you're like, uh... <laughs> Just kind of a... Wait, what now? <laughs> yeah. But what he's trying to say is one of the ways in which God's faithfulness is revealed is through his wrath. I want to talk about the wrath of God, but I just want to, for, for sake of all of our sanity, by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 21, God's going to talk about the good side of it. So he's going to spend about a chapter and a half-ish talking about the bad news. And this is really important for what he's going to do. It's important for two reasons. Number one, Paul sees it as necessary to level the playing field. Because again, there's different oh, groups that sure. are putting themselves over and above each other, and they're both doing it. They're He's basically both. saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right. Which, again, another one of those almost like throwaway lines that yeah, gets used right. for all sorts of things. But he's basically saying that's true of every group. You guys specifically. Mm-hmm. Again, it's we'll, we'll get there in a second. Um, you know, people universalize that in a way that I think is faulty. I'm going to be really careful with what I say. They make it like, oh, it's obvious that, but it, but Paul means is all of you people are sinners. All sin affects everything. So I mean, I am not of the opinion that um, you know, a newborn baby or an unborn baby who dies in utero has necessarily sure. committed With all of the a caveats of, of of the Catholic doctrine. Yeah, everyone inherits original sin, and but not else. all of Christianity actually shares that. Right. So again, that's why putting it in context, Paul. Yeah. He's talking about them. You yeah. guys are all sinners. You, one group thinks you're better than the other. Other group thinks you're better than the other. You're not. So he's going to get to the good news in chapter 3, verse 21. And he's going to talk about how God's covenant faithfulness is revealed in Jesus specifically. But you can't fully understand the good news 
unless you actually felt the bad news, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Israel has suffered under this for a really long time. They felt the pain of not knowing where God is. Did he abandon us? And so right. the good news of the gospel that, no, he didn't abandon you. He's here. It's time to you know be picked up from the ashes. You feel that. The Gentiles might not feel that as much. They've moved from one kind of mega superpower that they're existing in to another kind of royal allegiance to another king. It's a different yeah. reality. Yeah. So Paul's got to nuance this. But first he wants you to get the idea of God's wrath being the vehicle. So again, he says, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. I want to see if you guys can figure out what I think he might be saying in this next line. So um, again, put it in context. And this is where we have to kind of put some words in people's mouth or try to read between the lines. I'm not, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but <laughs> reading between the lines a little bit. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So the them implies that there's a specific group he's talking to. What can be known about God is plain to them. For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Therefore, they are without excuse. Which group do you think he's speaking to? Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians right here? God is plain to them, so Jews. No, sorry. Gentiles. I, so here's why I think it's the Gentiles. It's not necessarily self-evident until okay. you begin to pick it apart. Okay. What could, I think it's the Gentiles, and here's why I think it's the Gentiles. Yeah. What might they be saying? So think of what's happening with the two ethnic communities. The Jews are like, look, we're the covenant people. Again, we're fine that you're here. We're glad to have you. But like we're in charge. We're the ones. And right. we know we're in charge because we've got the whole story. We mm -hmm. have the covenants. We have the patriarchs. We have Moses. We yeah. have everybody. We have everything. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, you Gentiles, look at look at history. You've been off worshiping stone statues and worshiping these gods that are not gods and sacrificing to all these pagan idols and giving honor to things that are not God. You, your whole history shows that you guys don't have a clue. So because we're the older brothers and we know what's going on, we should be in charge. Yeah. And I wonder, I'm putting words in their mouth a little bit, but I wonder if the Gentiles are saying, hey, 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 yes, we worship stone statues. Yes, we've worshiped trees and owls and clouds and everything else. But you guys didn't tell us. You, if you're so much the covenant people, if you've got all the promises of God and the Torah and the Old Testament and the patriarchs and the prophets... Why didn't you share it with the rest of us? It's not our fault that we were worshiping things that weren't God because we didn't know any better. Yeah. And Paul says, BS, you didn't know any better. But that's I don't what know. He's pulling but here. he says, they are without excuses for although they knew God, they didn't honor. You're on verse, that's yes. the verse you're on, right? Yes, that's exactly but right. But he must be talking to the people who knew God. I, I think what he's Yisrael. doing, there's, there's different schools of thought on this. My school of thought, what I believe he's saying, he's leaning on what we might call natural theology which is that although we believe in divine revelation, we also believe that God reveals himself in whatever way he's going to well, reveal himself Ever since himself the creation of the world, everyone. his invisible nature, namely yes. his eternal power and deity, have been clearly perceived in the things, in the that, things have that have been, been made. made. In so creation although alone, they are without oh. excuse, they knew God, but they didn't honor God or give thanks to him. And, and honor and is doxa. They didn't glorify him. They didn't him. glorify him. And these Israelites over here did glorify God. Well, it's not Take exactly Take the Israelites out of it for a second. Yeah, Take the these Israelites people out. knew God... They had, they had In other some, words, you should have known God. Yeah. Creation alone is enough. The church has always taught creation alone is enough to teach that there is a God and he is good. Do you think Paul had Plato in mind? Like, hey, you guys had the... I think he could have. Like, you guys had the gift of Plato. I don't even think it was conscious. I have, think it might have just been in there. And yet you went off and did your sort of pagan stuff when you could have could followed be. at least sort of a platonic monotheism. Uh, 
Yes. Again, that's putting a lot of words in Paul's mouth, but that actually does make, that seems to be what he's getting at. That creation alone does reveal certain things. And so you, you can know that because it. your own philosopher named Plato. Because your own philosophers mm. taught this. Your own patronage mm-hmm. taught this stuff. And I point that out because it's a really important Catholic piece of theology. Because there was a time in my Christian life where, you know, I, I mean, uh, there's a lot of Christian traditions that teach unless, you know, we tell someone, you know, explicitly about the person of Jesus Christ, they're all going to burn in hell. Right. And that's not exactly how God works. There is still a responsibility of evangelization. We have yeah. to share the good. We have, we must. We're compelled to. But God's not going to leave anybody out in the cold. This is yeah. the whole story of uh, who's the prostitute in Joshua? Um, oh, Rahab. Yeah. Rahab. Yeah, that's right. Who say says, that. look, I, she takes in the spies because she's like, we heard about your God. Yeah. And we were all moved. We were all, we melt, our hearts melted. Yeah. And the church is like, that's the example of faith. That's yeah. the example of what Paul is talking about. Yeah. That we all can perceive that there's a God and his goodness. Again, we can't parse out the Ten Commandments necessarily or the, you know, all the stuff. But you guys, the fact that you, and, and we know also in the ancient world, there's a whole bunch of sordid liturgies that went along with the worship of these gods. She's like, you guys can't just be like, well, we didn't know any better, so we did all this and stuff. Sacrificing babies and having orgies and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, it's not, it's like a teenager, like, I didn't know pornography was bad, so I just, did. like, no, there's something that's built into all of us. Right. You're not, you don't have that excuse. Claiming to be wise, which again, points that's to the That's how Greek. you know it's the Greeks. Claiming to be wise like them Greeks. Yes. Uh, they became the, fools and the exchanged gimmick. the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Yeah, exactly right. And then verse 24 is the, the, the catch with the wrath. Therefore, what is God's wrath? God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, impurity, dishonoring their bodies. It's what we call the downward spiral of sin. Yeah. So according to Paul, God's wrath is when he lets you have it your way. I made myself clear. I showed myself to you in whatever way God chose to do that. You refused to give glory to me. You wanted But if I'm a Gentile, stuff. I'm saying, well, surely, okay, I can sort of see that I can come up with some sort of inductive proof for the existence of God by means of reason. Mm-hmm. But these guys got a burning bush and a pillar of smoke. And yet, so you're, say you're in the Jewish population. And you're sitting there listening to like, yeah, they worship stone statues and idols yeah. made of gold because they didn't know anything. And then Paul's going to be like, and do you guys remember your own history there? You right. did know. You and did you know. Still. And you Because again, what he's trying to do is rip both groups yeah. down right. and not give any license to be over and above the other. Because right. they're like, hey, we didn't know any better. So we did our best. You guys had everything. And they're like, but we had. This. So yeah. again, this is a way of, of leveling the playing field. And saying that, um, yeah, you're, you're both without excuse in a certain sense, which he's going to do because of the good news that's coming. But again, the good news doesn't make any sense if you don't recognize the weight of sin. Yeah. And a big part of what Paul's going to do for, again, the remainder, well, a, at least a half of the book, is stress the idea of what sin actually does. Yeah. The danger sin actually, the destruction sin wreaks over the world and over you and our lives and everything else. Because I think there might be a temptation to downplay that in the community. So he needs to, it's not just Paul being mean. It's not just Paul the Punisher. It's that he has to show them, if they're going to understand anything about who Jesus is and what their faithful allegiance actually means, you have to understand the weight of sin. Both Jew and Gentile, you have to understand. That's why he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So from chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, his overarching point is that for both of you, sin is out of control. Mm -hmm. It has wreaked havoc. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to see it or not, whether you don't want to hold it over somebody else's head or not, that's the truth. And God's wrath 
which you've both experienced in your own way, Jew and Gentile, yeah. is when he lets you do what you want, when he lets you have your way. God's yeah. mercy is when he steps in and stops you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says, okay, now this has got to end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which again, I think we have our minds flipped on that. It's, it's you know, I, this is such a dumb analogy, but all of my kids have done this at various points, but there's one of my kids that was worse than any of the others who every time it was cold and like freezing and snowing, they just would not wear a jacket. And it was this fight every morning going to school. You got to wear your jacket. I don't want to wear the jacket. And at one point, my wife, we were both like, like, good, go for it. See how it is. I'm, I'm sick of fighting with you. Yeah. And they're like, it's cold. It was a miserable day. And I'm sure the teachers all thought we were terrible. But, you know, there comes yeah. a point where like, look, there's only so much I can tell you that yeah. you're going to feel this. You're going to have to feel the consequence. Yeah. You know, so, it's a silly example. But that's So what happens at verse 21? Okay, so in in verse 21, um, there's a total shift, right? So Paul has to show, and one of his main aims, that bringing Jews and Gentiles together is a matter of his integrity, right? Mm -hmm. That he is doing nothing more than what he promised he would do, right? Because the state of the church in the first century is one of shock. Mm -hmm. Has God abandoned his people? And so... Um, yeah, all of the things that we've already talked about. There's there's so few Jews left. There's all these things. The Gentiles seem to be in charge. And so in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Yes. Although the law, the law they're meaning the covenant with Israel, right? No, I think it means Deuteronomy. Oh, okay. Specifically, this okay. is where we The righteousness back to... of God has been manifested apart from this Deuteronomic law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, pointing to it. Yeah. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, i.e. are baptized. Yes. For there's no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Yes. Let's pause there. And and we can keep going because Paul, again, he's, he's very verbose in his sentences. But that, that's the key, and that's kind of our setup for the rest. Because, again, the questions underneath the questions, the things that go without saying are, again, okay, so what's the relationship to the Old Testament then? What's the relationship to the law? Because one of the things that makes the Jews the Jews is their relationship to their law. I mean, even yeah. the Roman historians say, you Jews, you're always talking about your law. And if it's now just been dispensed, which the church is still working out the ramifications thereof— then what do we do with that? Because we Gentiles were like, we don't care about your law. Like, do your, you know, eat kosher all you want, yeah. I guess. Celebrate that day better than these days all you want, I guess. But we don't have to worry about it. And so Paul is going to show how Jesus has now come apart from the law. But remember, behind all of the objects, there's people, right? So it's not merely about the law. It's about the people who follow the law. It's not merely about those who don't have the law. It's about Well, yeah, it is about the people who don't have the law and their access now. So the last word, and this is what we'll kind of leave it with, is this last word, justified. We're justified by God, right? And justified in Paul's mind and the Old Testament is related to the term salvation. It's a bit different and salvation has much more political ramifications in the Roman Empire. But to be justified means to be formally adopted into the family of God. And so Paul will constantly talk about, yeah, sometimes he'll use them almost interchangeably, but justification, which again, this is the big question Mm -hmm. of, Uh, the Protestant Reformation, justification is the process of membership and entrance into the covenant family. Being saved means we're in it, right? We're offered salvation by Caesar or by Jesus or whoever. So in Paul's theology, if I, a baptized Catholic, go to hell, I have been justified in my baptism despite my eternal damnation. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I think, the moral of the Justified means that I'm incorporated into the Church of Christ, into into the mystical body of Christ. That's absolutely right. But again, that's an Old Testament term. And in the Old Testament, to be justified meant that you had received formal membership in the the covenant people of Israel 
through circumcision and then the keeping of the laws and everything else. But it's the analogy of the prodigal son, right? Can you lose justification? Can you not be saved anymore? Can, you know, is it once saved, always saved? No, you can lose it because again, justification is going to be the formal process of adoption. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son to talk about a kid who is actually a son of the father. And no amount of sin can actually change that reality, right. but you can still walk away from it and choose to reject it. So you can lose the sort of graces of justification. Yes, right. And that is going to be very important for, especially when he gets to chapters 9 through 11, when he talks about, okay, so what do we do with Israel? Because if you can't ever cease to be this, if you can't stop, if you can't undo justification, what about all these other Jews that have not come along with the Messiah? Right. How do we, what category do we put them in? How do we think about them? And Paul's going to have a lot to say about that. But it matters that Paul's whole theology is one of sonship and daughtership, yeah. that you can't just undo with sin. No amount of sin does that. So then what do we do with all these family members who don't know their family members? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the setup for the rest of the book, I think. Okay. So next week, I want to get into kind of the the heart of what we call Paul's Christology. So we're going to talk mainly about chapters five through eight, which uh, I've got a cool paradigm I want to share with you guys about sort of how uh, some framework to put those kind of key middle chapters about who is Jesus, what has he done, old Adam, new Adam, sin, redemption, all the all the kind of Christological theology. What we're diving into next week is your the stuff that you wrote your dissertation on, is it not? I did, yeah, my doctoral dissertation is on this. That is super exciting, and uh, thank you for opening the scriptures to us. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Our Sunday School teacher is Dr. Scott Powell. And we'll be back next week with a totally awesome paradigm.